So as Paul said, I'm carrying on our series on waiting. And I want to speak to you this morning about a specific sort of waiting. And as a society, we prioritise and celebrate speed, do we not? We, we, we love next day or even better, same day delivery. Love a bit of that. I don't like it when it says it's coming the same day and it doesn't. Microwave meals, fast track for rides at places like Alton Towers, being a VIP at events, find my or life 360. What a wonder. I want to know where my kids are right now and I can stalk them on my phone. And it is wonderful. I don't know how my parents survived. Going and getting your passport really quickly because you forgot to do it. Having sky priority at the airport so you can jump in front of all them queues and wave at everyone who's waiting to see if you're right, you should have done it. A&E waiting up. I want to know where the shortest wait is at A&E so I can go there. Anyone else? They're a great thing. Not when they're not right though. Do you ever do this? Quickest time that I can get home on my commute. When I was at university, I used to catch sometimes three buzzies to get home. And if I caught them just the right time, I could get home in half an hour from Kiel all the way to Ashbank. Where? Loved it. Quickest I can get the kids to go to sleep. <laughs> Don't happen now, I go to sleep before them. But we celebrate these things. We celebrate speed. We celebrate the fastest man or woman on earth. We celebrate the fastest swimmer, the fastest boat, the fastest car, the fastest all you can eat in a restaurant. We celebrate these things. But you know, I believe there is an ingrown belief within us as a society that getting more done is a good thing. And therefore... So we can get ahead in life because we get more done. So how do we do that? We do things quicker. So we do things quicker because we want to get to ahead, ahead, because we want to achieve, because we want to do well. You know, and technology has conditioned us to fast rewards. And it's made us, I believe, think that waiting is an unpleasant and uncomfortable business and we don't like it. Anyone? I want it, I want it now. I want to be doing well with God and I want it now. I want a great prayer life and I want it now even though I've never prayed. I want to read all my Bible and I want to do it now even though I've never read it. I want to lead something at church but I don't want to put all the other stuff in and wait and do all this stuff to get to that place. But I believe God works in a different way. The word wait appears 139 times in the Bible. If you look at different variants, the number differs, but it's about that much. David waited 15 years to be king. Moses waited 40 years to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Sarah waited 25 years for a son. Rebecca waited 20 years for twins. You know, and these people, they didn't always wait well. They didn't always wait in a healthy way. And they didn't always like waiting. Rebecca cried out to Isaac, Give me children or else I will die. We don't always wait well for things. Psalm 27 verse 14 says this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. 
When the Bible says something more than once, it's trying to tell you something. So the Bible is trying to tell us that we need to spend some time waiting. Contrary to what society says, do it quick, do it now, do it well. God says, wait and wait and maybe wait a bit longer. It's important. It repeats. There is significance in it. But it also, I love this little verse because it also advises us how to wait. Because it says, wait for the Lord be strong and take heart. So God recognises that waiting isn't easy. God recognises in the waiting, we need to be strong because sometimes we don't want to wait and we need to take heart because we get discouraged. Yes? So God recognises that. So be strong and take, take courage or take heart in your waiting. I believe there are two different sorts of definitions of waiting. One is a passive sort of waiting and one is an active sort of waiting. And we're going to look at both this morning. The definition of passive waiting is this. Stay where one is or delay action until a particular time or event or before something needs to be dealt with. This is active waiting. Remain in readiness for a purpose. You know, I really believe that if we don't allow waiting into our theology, then we place ourselves above God and say, I know better. If instead we surrender and humble ourselves to him, then it gives us purpose. We can understand that there's reason in the waiting. It helps us to fight off the lies of the enemy that try and pull us away from waiting at times when we need to. Now, don't get me wrong, there is merit in waiting, but there is merit in doing things and in action. But there are seasons where we must wait, and we find ourselves waiting, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. You may not be in a season of waiting, you may have come out of a season of waiting, you may be just about to go into a season of waiting, but hopefully the things that I talk about this morning can help you in the future and help you work through the things of the past too. So let's look at these two different types of waiting. The first one I talked about was passive waiting, which I believe can be, not always, but can be a very unhealthy form of waiting. So you, when you're waiting passively, often it means that waiting's just a bit of a waste of time, isn't it? That's what passive waiting says. There's no benefit to it. There's no credit in it. And so it's just wasteful. The problem with passive waiting is... And the problem with us when we're passive in our waiting is it creates empty space. It creates wasted and pointless space. And therefore, we don't like that because society has conditioned us. So we don't like the empty space. We don't like the nothingness. And so we look to fill it. So we'll fill it emotionally. We'll fill it physically. We'll fill it spiritually. And this is where things go wrong is when we fill this space. You know, we try and fill that space emotionally. And we enter into unhealthy relationships. Relationships that lead us astray. Relationships where we're codependent because I feel like I need some purpose. And I've got no purpose because God's telling me to wait. So I've got to fill it with a relationship where I feel like I've got purpose in this relationship with that person. But actually, how healthy is that? Sometimes we enter into emotional relationships for that emotional fix or that appeaser so we feel better. Because waiting is not easy and God tells us be strong and take heart. So we try and fill that fix with our emotions. 
We fill it physically, time fillers. Binge watch the TV. When is the next series coming out? Why has that Lord of the Rings thing just finished and season two is not coming till 2024? So, yes, I googled it. <laughs> Flipping heck. But we fill our time with these. So, if you don't like that sort of thing, you should just go and watch it because it's really good. Time fillers, you fill it, fill it with TV, you fill it with busyness. I cannot cope with the waiting, so I will be busy. I will get involved with something. I will do something. I will keep myself busy. I will clean this. I will do that. I will do something else. I will, I will, I'll fill it with some purpose. So I, I just don't know what to do in this waiting time, so I'm going to go and do something that's purposeful, that's helpful to other people. But actually, is it helpful to me? Sometimes the need to feel important drives us rather than the waiting. And that's when it becomes unhealthy. We fill it spiritually, and this is where we get wrong theology of God. This is where a view of God that we have can be wrong and cannot be helpful. You know, we'll think things like, I need to be good so that I get what I want from God. So if I'm a good person, then God will give me what I want in this waiting period. And it's because I'm not good or because of sin or because of this or because of that or because I'm not serving enough or I'm not giving enough or I'm not doing enough that I'm having to wait for the thing that I'm praying for. It is a lie and it is wrong. Me and God are good. Sometimes we think God just needs our help. We can laugh about it in here, can't we? But when we're sitting at home in the waiting, I'm sure God would need some help. I'm sure if I did this, that would help and then we would move forward and I wouldn't have to wait any longer. Let's look at a couple of examples of this passive waiting, shall we, from the Bible. First thing I want to say to you is this. Waiting keeps you in God's will. Are you in it? You're not liking it. I don't like it, but waiting keeps you in God's will. Doesn't mean you're not in God's will if you're doing something, because sometimes you are. Don't hear me wrong. Don't pigeonhole it in and say that's the only way. That's not what I'm saying. But there are times when waiting keeps you in God's will. Let's look what happens when we don't wait. So we're going to go and join Saul in the Old Testament. Saul was made king of Israel. Saul at the time was doing a lot of fighting with the Philistines and he'd gathered his army to have a fight with the Philistines. The army were absolutely terrified, really didn't want to have a fight with the Philistines and Samuel the prophet, who was the way that they connected with God, had said to them, wait there for seven days and at the end of seven days I'll come, I'll offer a sacrifice, I'll ask God to bless the battle and then you can go and fight. So Saul waits and he waits and he waits and the army get more and more and more and more touchy and then they start dispersing because they're scared. And at the end of the seven days, Samuel still has not come. So Saul makes the offering to God instead. Now we need to understand this because we think, well, surely just asking God to bless a battle, that should be fine. What's wrong with that? This is what's wrong with that. Imagine when King Charles, as his coronation thing go on and somebody from the member of the public thinks that it is okay and acceptable for them to go and anoint him as king 
That is not acceptable. That is the job of the Archbishop of Canterbury or whoever does that because they sit in that position and that is their role to do that and fulfil that. It's like if you go to a wedding and you're hungry and you decide that you're going to cut the wedding cake. This is what it's like. It's just, it, you don't do it. You might go and pick a little bit off the side, but you don't cut the thing. This is how wrong it is what Saul did. We don't perhaps understand it so much now, but Saul was not in a position of authority to do what he did. That was Samuel's job. So 1 Samuel 13 says this. Just as he, Saul, finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. As soon as Saul stepped out of the waiting, he stepped out of the will of God. Because the consequences of this action at this point are the consequences that lost him the kingdom. They're the consequences of God rejecting him as king. They're the consequences for the rest of the generations that were to come after him. You know, very often we can make poor choices because of the pressure and fear that other people put upon us. This is what Saul did. Because of the pressure and fear of others, he couldn't wait any longer. He thought, I can fix this. Why didn't he send someone look for Samuel? Why don't you just, you know, go and find Samuel. Come and tell me that he's coming. If he's walking slow, that's fine. But I just want to know he's coming. He didn't. He thought, I can fix it. Now, on the presumption that Saul understood the history of Israel, Gideon, one of the judges, had come before Saul. And one of the stories that surround Gideon is this, that he took a huge army and God made the army smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And they had this amazing victory. So I am assuming that Saul would have known this as part of their history is Israel, that he would have known this story. So why did he doubt God that even if he had a small army that he would win? Sometimes we need to learn the lessons from the testimonies of other people to allow us to have faith in our waiting and in our battles. You know, Saul stepped out of God's will and he lived with the consequences for the rest of his life. Waiting at times keeps you in the will of God. Let's look at another example. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago a little bit. Waiting stops you causing pain. So let's go back to Abraham. So Abraham was promised by God a child. He was promised by God to be the father of a great nation, yet his wife was barren and he was getting really old. You know, Abraham and Sarah decided that they weren't going to wait for God. God needed a little bit of help. God had got these promises for him that they were going to have a child, that he was going to be the father of this great nation, and yet 
they couldn't have children. So Sarah and Abraham cooped up this plan that Abraham would, I don't even know how to say it politely, but they would have a child with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And so that's what they did. They go, God, we've fixed the problem. We've made your promise come to pass. But they didn't wait. And the pain that it caused for each one of them was great. You know, for Sarah, she was despised by a maid. She was teased by a stepson. And she was still barren. It says in Genesis 16, When she, Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, Sarah. And this led Sarah on to treating Hagar so harshly that Hagar ran away. Let's look at Abraham. Abraham then found himself in a family within fighting. He had a son that he had to send away in the end. It says in Genesis 21:11, "The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son." This is when God said to him, "You need to send Ishmael, Hagar's sons, away." This was after his son to Sarah came, because God kept his promise, regardless of whether they waited or not. Hagar and Ishmael, Genesis 21, 16 to 17. Hagar was bullied by a mistress, so she ran away, like I said. And then they were sent away. It says, then she, Hagar, went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And God heard the boy crying. Now you'd be pleased to know that God actually looked after them and they didn't die. But because they didn't wait, they all got hurt. Because they didn't wait, it was painful. It was a painful experience for Sarah, for Abraham, for Hagar, for Isaac, for Ishmael. They all suffered pain because they didn't wait. When we wait on God, it stops us causing pain. And you may think, yeah, but the pain I'm feeling now is so much greater. Is it really? Or are we going to trust God that in the waiting as he shapes and he molds us, as we wait on him, that his ways are always better, that his plan is always perfect, and that his ways are always right? You know, passive waiting, unhealthy waiting, So often it's easy to find ourselves in that place. And yet the waiting that the Bible talks about is an active waiting. I believe it's a healthy waiting. Waiting in the Bible is an active verb. It's a doing word. It's not passive. Active waiting fills the space. It fills the space with purpose, with hope, with faith and with peace. It involves prayer. It involves Sabbath and silence at times. It involves Bible study. It involves serving. It involves community. It involves grieving. Let's look at some examples of active waiting in the Bible. The first one is this. Waiting prepares you for the future. Genesis 6 to 8 tells us the story of Noah. And God told Noah to build an ark and he was going to send a flood. Now, they reckon it probably took about 100 years 
for this ark to be built. Noah was really old. He was like 500 years old, so it's like pittance, really. But it took a long time for him to build this boat. Bear in mind, he's building a boat where there is no water or flood. And you may think, well, yeah, you're saying he was doing active waiting. His active waiting was that he was building a boat. It wasn't. The boat building was by the by. The boat building was an aside. The boat building probably caused a load of ridicule. Why on earth are you building that boat? There's going to be a flood. <laughs> yeah, right. It wasn't the boat building that made his waiting active. The building of the boat was what was building his faith, what was what was building his trust in God. He served despite the ridiculousness of what he was doing. Building a boat for animals that weren't even there. It seems like madness. God, why am I doing this? God, why am I here? God, what is going on? God, why, 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 why? Yet he's in that season. It wasn't the boat building that made it active. It was the building of his faith that made it active. The faith, the peace, the trust that the flood would come. Can you imagine? He must have had days where he thought, going to look pretty stupid if the flood doesn't come. Going to look pretty stupid if some animals don't come and fill these places I've made for him on this boat. And then he had to wait again because the flood came. And then he had to wait for the dry land. But he had learned. He was seasoned in the waiting. He was seasoned in his trust in God. He knew what it was. He knew the waiting was a good thing. He knew there was more in the waiting than just waiting. It was active waiting. You know, waiting challenges our priorities. During the waiting, we learn to love God more than the things that we desire or want. And I say it again. During the waiting, we learn to love God more than the things we desire or want. James 5, 7 says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The farmer is waiting for the fruit, yes? But the farmer learns his priority in the waiting is not the fruit, but the rains. So suddenly we begin to realize that actually there are things that are in the waiting that are more important than the thing at the end that we're waiting for. The farmer learns to love the seasons and the rains. He learns to appreciate them. He almost learns to wait for them to help him in his waiting process. And yet we look at waiting and just think, oh, I hate waiting. But there is process. There is priority in that waiting. There are suddenly things that are more important in that season of waiting than the end result. I remember before I met Paul and I was like, I'm a 20-year-old Christian girl. I want a boyfriend. I want a husband. It is everything that I need. It is 
the epitome of my life. You may well laugh. And I remember I would sit and, you know, people would pray and we'd be in meetings and I'd be like, oh God, I want a husband. And God's like, yeah, right, you don't. Wait till he comes, you change your mind. <laughs> Not really, darling. And I remember sitting and thinking, I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm struggling and I'm crying. And why is no one coming and praying for me? I'm crying really big, snotty crying and bubbles from my nose. And no one's coming to pray with me, Lord, in my distress of wanting a husband. And God spoke really clearly to me. Only time he ever has. And he said this, I will be enough for you, Sarah. God will be enough for you in your waiting. Let him be enough for you in your waiting. You know, Paul talked last week and he mentioned a little bit about the bridegroom and the bride. And I want to go back and revisit this. And I want to look at the Jewish wedding tradition of of the process of the bride and the bridegroom. And as I do, I want you to think and consider Jesus when he came to earth, when he died on the cross and when he rose again. I'll try and compare it as we go through. So the first thing that happens is the father of the groom chooses a bride and agrees a bride price. So the father of the groom, God in heaven, chooses a bride Start it again. Asking for money for our daughters. <laughs> You've thrown me now. So the father of the groom chooses a bride and agrees a bride price. So God in heaven, just you shut up now, chooses a bride and he's agreed a bride price. That we were brought at a price. So once that's happened, they do this betrothal ceremony. And the bride price is paid. And a covenant is signed. And they drink wine as a symbolic sealing of the marriage. Sound familiar? So Jesus comes to earth. The bride price of his death on a cross is paid. A new covenant is signed. And they have a drink of wine to seal it. We should be doing communion this morning. This is the wine of the new covenant, sealed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes? So the bride price is chosen, the ceremony is complete, and then you have to just take a moment. Because Jewish engagements and weddings are not like ours today. So they do all of this, and then the bride goes back to her house and the groom goes back to his house with the parents. And they are as good as married apart from they haven't consummated their marriage. Yeah? Yeah? Don't know what that means. Come and speak to Paul afterwards. <laughs> Perhaps don't. So they are married. The only thing that can break this marriage, this covenant, is if the father of the bride decides to he is the only one or if somebody died obviously 
So the father of the bride is now the only one who can break this covenant in Jewish tradition. So this poor girl has done all of this and then gets sent back home again. And it's got to wait. But she is not waiting in vain because the groom has gone back to his father's house. Sound familiar? Gone back to his father's house. And it says that what they did in Jewish tradition was his job was then to build a house on the side of his father's house for him and his bride to live in. And once he had finished building it, then the father of the groom came to inspect the house and said, whether it was good enough or not, like we've missed a bit of cement there, come on, let's do it properly. Once it was complete, then the father agreed it and the groom went and fetched his bride. Often in the evening in Jewish tradition, I wonder why. And then they would have a seven-day feast, and it would be a wonder and a joy. Now, when you read the New Testament, there is, there is that many references to weddings and the bridegroom and the feast and all this. And you think, why is all that in there? This is why all that is there. Because Jesus came, he paid the price for you and for me, for the forgiveness of our sins. He has gone back to heaven to prepare a place for us. He says, I go back to prepare a place for you and I will return again. Obviously, that's talking about eternal life and the second coming. But I believe that Jesus is living heaven on earth now. I believe that there is a... a, a wedding feast almost now that the bride and the groom can be together now and live in that fulfillment if that is the case Jesus is working now in your waiting so those things that you're believing for those promises that you're thinking God when those miracles that you're after God is working in the waiting Jesus is building in the waiting he is building that place for you. So when you think, actually, there's, oh, God, where are you? I am building. I am working. I am in the waiting. Dave, if you want to come and join me. Jesus is working for you. He is working in your waiting. Not just in heaven, but here on earth. So those things you're waiting for, those things you're believing for, those things you're trying to do yourself because you think God needs a bit of help, those things Jesus is working. He is actively working in your waiting. He's not keeping you waiting for waiting's sake. There is purpose, there is growth, there is depth of relationship in that waiting. And Jesus is preparing that place for you to be able to step into as his bride. You know, and all this being said, I believe that God is a God of miracles. That God is a God of fulfilled promise and that God is a God of provision. So this morning we may have talked about waiting and you may be thinking, okay, I'll, I, can, I can do this. I can wait. I can wait like Noah waited. I can wait like that farmer and see the good in the seasons when it seems to take ages for God to fulfill his promises to me, for those miracles that I'm believing for. I can do that. I can wait actively. I can seek God and find God in that place. Yes, do. But let me tell you this. 
that I believe that God is right now a God of miracles. And for some of you this morning, He wants to meet you in that place and answer those prayers and provide what you need. And you know, for some of you this morning, it's a continued waiting. But in that continued waiting, God still wants to meet you. God still wants to minister to you. And God still wants to strengthen you. Be strong and take heart. So this morning, this is what I want us to do. I want us to wait actively. Where we pray, where we believe, where we talk through with God, the difficulties with God and how, with, God, how, I just don't know. God, I struggle to understand you in this, but that we can talk that through with him. So this morning, I want us to create some space to believe, to wait actively, but to declare that this is a house of miracles. And as we do that this morning, I believe God wants to meet you. I believe God wants to heal you. I believe God wants to provide for you. And I also believe God wants to strengthen you if you're in a season of waiting. Do you still believe he's moving? Do you still believe he's speaking? Do you still believe he is building that place of promise for you in your life? I'm still believing. I'm still believing. Jesus is working in your waiting. I want to pray for us. And as I do, if you want to stand, I want to pray for us and believe that God is going to come and meet us here this morning. And I want to invite you, if you're able, we're not going to come and pray for you because this is about you and your waiting. But if you're able, I want to invite you to come to the front. And if you can, I want to invite you to kneel. If you can't, that's fine, you can stand. But I believe that this is a house of miracles this morning. And I want to invite you as I pray to come forward. Come forward and believe that God wants to meet you in your waiting. That God wants to provide for you in your waiting and encourage you in that place. So come forward now and I want to pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are in the waiting. Jesus, you know and you understand our pain. You understand our unbelief. You understand the tears that we cry thinking, God, why does it take so long? Why do I not understand? Why do I not see the end result and just see the heartbreak? But God, this morning I pray, I pray for a spirit of miracles over this place. I pray for answered prayers. I pray for promises released, Father God, in Jesus' name. God, I thank you that you are in the waiting. And I pray that you would come this morning and you would bring comfort and hope. That you would bring strength. That you would encourage God. God, and as we sing this song together, God, that your miracles would unfold across this place and we would see breakthrough and we would see healing. We would see an outpouring, God. Come Holy Spirit, come fill this place.